Proctor here with some announcements before we get into this week's episode. All in Europe will be taking place on June 8th and 9th in Paris, France. Evan Zabucki and Richard Feldman will be speaking, and the rest of the speaker lineup is online. Early bird tickets are sold out, but standard tickets are still available. For more information to register, visit almurop.org. The Erlang User Conference will be taking place in Stockholm, Sweden on the 8th and 9th of June, with training on the 7th and the 12th through the 16th. For more information and to register, visit www.erlang-factory.com slash euc2017. Zurich Hack 2017 will be taking place in Zurich on the 9th through the 11th of June. Zurich Hack 2017 is a three-day Haskell Hackathon hosted at the HSR Hochschuler for Technique Rappersville, a fantastic venue located right at Lake Zurich and providing space for 300 participants. For more information and to register, visit zurichhack.info. Oslo Elm Day is a one-day conference about the Elm programming language and practical use of Elm in Norway and the Nordics. It will be held in Oslo, Norway, Saturday, June 10th. Visit osloelmday.no for more information and register. Korean Barcelona will be taking place June 19th through 20th, a new and unusual non-profit conference focused on programming languages and emerging challenges in the industry. Korean is a new conference focused on the intersection of emerging languages and emerging challenges in industry, as well as new ideas and paradigms in software development. For more information and to keep an eye open for registration, visit www.curry-on.org. O'Reilly Fluent Conference will be taking place June 19th through 22nd in San Jose, California. Fluent spotlights the crucial technologies and frameworks of the web stack, JavaScript, HTML5, CSS, React, Angular, Containers, Docker, and other emerging tools that are transforming the way web developers work. Save 20% with discount code USRG on most passes. For more information, visit www.oreilly.com slash pub slash cpc slash 61309. Euroclosure will be taking place in Berlin, Germany on July 20th and 21st. Euroclosure is the biggest closure conference in Europe. Founded in 2012, the conference is a great place to meet closure developers and learn about what's happening in the language, in the community, and in companies using closure. Visit 2017.euroclosure.org for more information and to register. BusConf is a nonprofit open space unconference about functional programming taking place from the 3rd to the 5th of August in Germany near Frankfurt. They provide a platform for people to meet, teach, and learn about functional programming-related topics in any language. Ticket registration is open, and you can find out more at www.bus-conf.org. StrangeLoop is coming up. StrangeLoop is a multidisciplinary conference that brings together the developers and thinkers building tomorrow's technology in fields such as programming languages, databases, distributed systems, AI and machine learning, security, and the web. It will be held in St. Louis, Missouri on September 28th through the 30th at the Peabody Opera House. Registration opens in early June, so make sure to visit thestrangeloop.com to keep updated as tickets go fast. Open F Sharp will be taking place the 28th through 29th of September in San Francisco. Taking place in the heart of San Francisco, Open F Sharp features two days of F Sharp talks and workshops with world-class speakers and a unique opportunity to connect with the F Sharp community and some of its key contributors while learning about the latest developments in the F-Sharp ecosystem. Early bird tickets are currently available. Visit openfsharp.org for more information and register. Lambda World is back, taking place in Cadiz, Spain on October 26th and 27th. The call for papers is open, so make sure to submit your talk or workshop. To submit your presentation and for more information, visit www.lambda.world. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I'll be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned that you would like to show your support for Functional Geekery. In that vein, Functional Geekery now has a Patreon page. If that's how you would like to show your support, you can find out more at www.patreon.com fngeekery. And a giant virtual hug goes out to all those who are already supporting the podcast. Lastly, if you're enjoying the Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Harris Proctor, and this week with us we have Eric Swoding. Eric, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Hello? 
I'm Eric. I'm a game designer and a programmer. I live in Gothenburg on the west coast of Sweden. And I've been an independent game designer for seven years, something like that. I make games on my own and together with friends. I re- released some uh, apps on the App Store and some PC games on Steam. And you got on my radar from a guest recommendation through an email. So thank you for sending those recommendations in. But I looked at you, looked at Corkling, and saw that it was a lisp that was typed. And that's interesting enough by itself with the fact that you don't hear about type lists too much. And then on top of that, it was talking about gaming and fast performance and the like. So wanted to get you on and dig into your backstory a little bit and talk about CARP. So let's start with how did you get into software to begin with? Yeah, so I kind of learned to program because I wanted to make games like a lot of people. And I started programming with BASIC when I was 12 or something. And then I went on to learn like C++ and so on to be able to make games. I went to game design school here in Sweden. And there we studied these kind of industrial techniques like C++. That's what you use for the big games that are made. And I went on to learn like C Sharp and Objective-C and so on, all those languages that you need to make games and apps. So that's how I got started. And you get in through wanting to build a game. As you said, there's a lot of people who find that power of, I play this game and I realize I can make the computer do things and control the computer and I enjoy games, so let's make a game. You have BASIC, you have some C++, you have C Sharp, Objective-C. If you're going off and we're getting into a list eventually, what was that background like that put you in those evolution of languages? I'm guessing something around Unity for C Sharp and the iOS apps for Objective-C. What were some of those foundations that were setting that led you into looking into functional programming and the things that you were finding was pain points when you were doing the big game development with C++ or C Sharp or Objective-C that kind of set that foundation for your first exposure to functional programming? I guess I tried out some of the functional languages a bit around my university time. Like I tried Haskell a little bit and Python, I remember. But it wasn't until I started working on my latest game, which took about five years to make Else Heartbreak, that I really had to kind of understand how functional programming worked. And that's because I wanted to put a programming language inside my game. And to be able to do that, I had to learn how to make languages. And I started researching that, like Google, how do you make a computer language? And uh, stumbled upon uh, Structure and Interpretation of Computer Programs, one of the first recommendations for this is the book you should read to be able to make your own language. So I started reading that, and of course, it's very good at selling you on the idea that this is a very powerful language scheme, that is. And yeah, it was just a fascinating book that got me interested in Lisps and how to implement languages in the kind of elegant way that you do with Lisps. And if you get that foundation starting to show through some Python, in college or university in some Haskell. Sometimes I've heard people say, I'm exposed to this stuff, but I don't quite get it because I haven't had the problems that this thing solves, so I don't really appreciate it. What was your exposure first that started setting these foundations, and were some of these foundations reinforced by certain things you did later in the C++ world or the C-sharp world or Objective-C world, depending on when you were folding things, these things back, or was it just you found the structure and interpretation of computer programs, and then all of a sudden, that's when you really had your enlightening moments? I was kind of slow in that respect. I mean, I was always very fascinated by the idea of programming languages 
just languages in general, actually, like the idea that you could invent your own language, uh, be it a spoken language or a computer language. Like it's such a tremendously cool, creative thing to do to invent your own language. So I really wanted to understand what it meant to create the language on your own. Like, how is that even possible when you use like a C++ compiler? You don't understand how anyone could actually have created this. So I guess I was always very fascinated by it from the outside, but it wasn't much in like my game making education that made me realize how you would actually create languages. That step was kind of too big for me at that time. And what I did learn a bit about was <laughs> these crazy things with the templates in C++, the template metaprogramming stuff, which was very mind-boggling. And now I can appreciate it a bit more from a language theoretical standpoint. But back then, I, I just thought it was like the weirdest and craziest thing I've ever seen. Yeah, it's not something I would want to do now when I know more about macros in Lisp and so on. But it was kind of a preview of some of those concepts. And I've heard some people come and go talking about the game stuff and the game model where it's a loop and you just have state, redraw state, or you just have a bunch of state and you're just looping over some of the stuff. The As people talk about the Elm architecture, the React architecture, or some of that reducer kind of stuff, and then I've also heard John Carmack talk about some of his functional programming stuff from QuakeCon, talking about the ideas of functional programming and then how you fit those back into game development. What were some of those foundations that were setting either positive or the scars that you were getting that when you saw SICP that reinforced what you were learning, saying, I think I start to get this now? Because I either got all this baggage of stuff that I was doing that was painful and I see how it could be easier or I see the part that was easy and this thing reinforces that. So what were some of those things that kind of helped set that foundation? So when you picked up SICP, you started to get it to click. Writing games is very messy often and all the examples in SICP and in a lot of these computer science books that I've read since then i mean it's so much more elegant and well thought out than what you usually end up with in a game so i guess it kind of sneaked up on me that it would be wonderful if i could write my games in a way that was more like this and also like for example in dr rackets which is something that you often end up with if you want to try out scheme you can play around with these things like different geometric shapes and they have really nice drawing APIs for playing with graphics and so on, which is also something that you feel like, oh, I wish I could draw things this easily when I make games also. I don't want to have to mess with OpenGL states or whatever, which is also what you're kind of used to as a game developer. So I guess the more I experimented and investigated all these functional ideas the more envy i felt towards <laughs> like the functional world for how simple and fun it was to use the ideas there and when i went back to make my actual games i couldn't use almost anything of it directly it was like i was missing a lot of the things i've learned and that was my next question was, as you see this elegance, as you see some of these ideas, it's not directly easy to necessarily always port them directly over to a different language, a different paradigm. But were there any of those takeaways that you started to kind of sort of wedge back in and force back in that says, I'm going to find this area and hey, immutability, or I'm going to do this because if I'm in the... C-sharp world and I'm using Unity or whatever that I'm doing my games, maybe I could take advantage of their lambdas or link queries over just data objects as transformations, or at least innumerables kind of stuff. What was the stuff that took you back and said, 
okay, now that I've had exposure, I see how elegant it is. I try to apply it back. And what was that like? I definitely tried to use Link in my games and Lambdas and so on. And I mean, it kind of works sometimes. And sometimes it works and then you have to rip it out because it's too slow or it creates too much garbage and so on. But I definitely experimented a lot with that in my games. I mean, more directly, what I could use of these things I learned was to implement various languages in my games. So like I said, Else Heartbreak is a game where you have access to a programming language inside the game. So that was kind of my first finished language. So that's a language that is designed to be easy to learn and easy to use in the sense that it should have nice error messages and so on. So that was, I couldn't have built that without the foundations I learned from functional programming, I think. And I also just kind of, by I just continued creating languages <laughs> using the same techniques and actually created a language for the dialogues in my game, kind of a DSL for creating interactive dialogues at the same time. That was kind of the same principles applied once again. So it's always much easier to apply these functional ideas in different corners of your architecture. It's much harder to apply them in the center of things where you try to update the whole world and you try to kind of create the main experience of your game. That's like the hardest part to fit it into. And I'm wondering, because at some point, if you've mentioned you're writing these other smaller languages, you decide to say, there's enough pain here. I like the elegance. I can't quite pull it back in the way I want. I found I can carve off these little pieces that are, as you said, specific DSLs for something specific. But trying to get at the heart of, as you're doing this, what started the prompt of saying, well, maybe I go do this and do you start out with just using racket or another scheme or a different list what was that foundation that started setting you down the road to actually going and realizing you want to start on carp and say i want a lisp oh and i want to type and i have these constraints that now i'm going to go write me a whole language that i can do my game development against <laughs> yeah i really tried everything before going down that route, actually, because, I mean, even though it's great fun creating a language, I really wanted there to be some kind of way to use one of the existing great languages. So, I mean, I've done a lot of experiments with Clojure, both with the normal Java Clojure and Clojure Script. So I've experimented a lot with Quill, which is a drawing library for Clojure which is great and very fun to use. And I've also tried a lot of small game ideas with Haskell using um, Gloss. Yeah, so I tried a lot of experiments with Haskell and uh, Gloss, which also is a great little toolkit for creating graphics and interactive things. And I've also tried uh, F-sharp together with Unity to be able to create the kind of game logic with F-sharp inside Unity. But everything I've tried has kind of failed when I've tried to scale it up to something bigger than toy projects or small little arcade-style games. Usually, I want to create kind of these more like worlds with simulations and so on. And to do that, it's very hard to use these languages because they it's kind of the worst uh, use case for them, actually, like yeah, creating thousands of little objects that change like 60 times a second and change some little part of their structure every frame. So um, after trying that for several years in various ways and at various points in time, I, I kind of started thinking that maybe if you create a language with a soul goal of making this actually possible, then maybe it could work. And you're playing with all these things. You played with some Scheme and Dr. Racket. 
it sounds like, for at least getting familiar with some of the SICP stuff and playing around, because you said you mentioned some stuff there. You're looking at Clojure, you're looking at Haskell, you're looking at F-Sharp. You're playing with these languages to see what is feasible, at least. What is that thing that then jumps down to say, okay, so I need to write a language, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to write a Lisp, and I want it typed. Was one that came before another? Was one realization that you liked that you needed a type language versus an untyped language? Was there something that said, I want a list because I like the powers of macros? What was the thing that kind of led you from all this playground around with a few different languages to actually deciding what kind of language you're deciding and desiring to create? The types come from the fact that it's really hard to create fast code without any types. If you're going to check the types dynamically too much, it's just going to be too slow for games. A lot of people who use these languages don't ever write games, so they don't really appreciate the fact that half a millisecond is kind of a big deal for calling some function or something. Like You're kind of working on another time scale when you're making games and you want to update the whole game 60 times a second. You have 16 milliseconds to work with. And it's very annoying if the basic things you want to do take up too much time because then you're going to hit the wall pretty fast. So yeah, the types was primarily for speed. But then, of course, I like Haskell and I like strong types. So to me, that wasn't very much of a problem. I mean, I guess you could say that some of the beauty of Lisp is that it's dynamic. And I would agree. But for this particular use case, I thought it was an interesting design choice to do away with the dynamic part and just focus on the speed of execution. Then concerning Lisp, (laughs) to me, reading about Lisp and the history of programming languages, it seems like Lisp was first with so many of the cool concepts like garbage collection and lambdas and so on and so on. But all those things are kind of in languages today, in most languages. The one thing that is still only part of Lisp is the syntax. And people try to say that the syntax of Lisp doesn't matter and so on, but or at least you try to say that when you want to try, make someone else try it out. But to me, the syntax of Lisp is the best part. It's the one thing that will always be there, and it will be unique to Lisp. So I just really like what you can do with the syntax of Lisp. Like you can use paredate, and you can write macros, and it's everything is just so easy. If you compare it to Haskell and so on, when you try to do certain things, the syntax really gets in your way. But with Lisp, it's so easy to just auto-format everything, and the order of things is so clear. It's just a really good syntax for writing code, I think. And that's one of those things I keep swinging back and forth about, and I'm not quite sure where I fall, because I haven't used some of these languages in enough anger on real projects to say, yes, I like the types that you get with a Haskell or F-sharp or ML family language versus the dynamic side of Lisp, where I've done dynamic languages that aren't Lisp. And I'm like, mm, I could get take or leave and then doing the Java and C-sharps and those have types. You're like, mm, I could kind of take and leave. They got some nice benefits, but they also got some detriments. But without using the extremes in anger either way, I can see both sides. But you're folding these things back. And it sounds like it is the being able to have the types as that safety net and guidance, but the code as the data as well of the list, which makes the Lisp macros possible. Because now you're just transforming a data structure, which is your code, which is your abstract syntax tree, which is all these things. You go down this route. How did you find marrying that? Was that pretty intuitive? Was that you just look, you saw some examples from the research of type bracket to know that this is possible? What were some of those things that helped you realize about 
the possibility of marrying the typed side with the Lisp side, because aside from type closure as a research project and type bracket, you don't really hear about too many other typed Lisps. So if you're going down this route and you're trying to marry these two together, was it just pure naivety of like, I want my types in here, so I'm going to do this and I'm going to just find a way to make this work? Or was there a bunch of other lessons learned that you started looking at first that say, yes, this is something I can pull off? Uh, there was definitely a lot of naivety, <laughs> but I have looked at type bracket and I have looked at type closure and so on. And the thing with macros is that the code that you get out after the macro, like you can inspect that and look at it. And in a typed setting like this, uh, you just need to generate code that actually type checks after the macro has run. So that's how it works in Carpet at least. So in the current implementation, the macro system is dynamic. It doesn't type check the macros. It only type checks the output of the macros. And I think that's a fine approach. I mean, I'm sure there are research that I haven't seen about putting more structure and a more principled way of doing it, like with types in the macros also. And that's certainly interesting. But Micros is just such a great way to fix annoying things for you as a programmer. And having the dynamic power in that part of the workflow is pretty handy. So I didn't want to cut that out immediately. And if you're looking at the types of macros, and based off some other stuff you've kind of alluded to about performance, and I want to make sure we touch some of the performance stuff, but I'm assuming that these become the compile time only macros then, as opposed to some lists have compile and runtime macro support. If you're doing the type checks, and probably for performance reasons, I'm assuming you're going to be exploding all macros at compilation time versus in the middle of a runtime then? Yeah, that's correct. Of course, I have been playing with the idea of exposing part of the compiler to the kind of runtime system, but that's more out of curiosity rather than that it would help me do what I want. For the use cases that I'm imagining this to be used for, it's not that important to have macros at runtime at all, or I don't think so, at least. And then you mentioned, as we talked about, you played with the F-Sharp Closure, Haskell, Dr. Racket, Racket languages, maybe some of the other variations that Racket allows and provides for. But you said, when it all comes down to it, game development is a different kind of beast because you said 16 milliseconds, I think, per game loop? Yeah, I mean, if you're making an action game, at least, uh, you, I guess you have double that if you make a kind of a more casual game where it's not super important with the frame rate, then you can usually go down to 30. But yeah, something like that. And so if you're doing this, what were some of those lessons that you found that you're having to integrate in? You mentioned the types became performance, and I can't do dynamic checking because that takes up too much time in my game loop. What were some of those other things that you found that said, I got to do this, and these are things that are needed for writing games? Because I'm sure that any performance trick you do is going to help benefit anybody as we later cover the state of CAR. But if you're coming through with this, would it be things like persistent data structures? How do you do with garbage collection? What were some of these other things that you learned as you were looking at all these other languages that said, these are where we fall short. And if we can pull this thing off, not only is this good for games, it's good for everybody because we get these performance packs and we don't have these stop the world garbage collection that we have and hear about in Java. So what was some of that stuff that you said, here's these problems with these other languages and here's how I think I'm going to address them to be fast enough for a game engine? Yeah, so the main focus so far has been on memory management, which is usually where the real pain comes in when you use a garbage collector language for games. Usually it's fine in the beginning, but then at some point in the development cycle, you realize that you have these stutters that you want to get rid of, and it's really hard because you haven't thought very much about memory management during the development. So 
I kind of forgot to mention, but I mean, the thing that really made me realize that there was something better was Rust, obviously, which is a language that a lot of game developers are very excited about since it's got a lot of the niceties of functional languages together with a memory management model that is not garbage collection. So I kind of looked at Rust and tried to learn from that how you could solve these things in a good way. And so if it's memory management and just reviewing the GitHub page, you talk about the mutability versus unmutability and being explicit about when you're allocating stuff, when you're copying stuff, using a cache. So what are some of these specifically performance things that you found that help? You said you kind of took some inspiration of Rust. Are you actually going full on explicitly allocating a lot of places? Are you trying to remove as much and just say, well, when you need to, you can explicitly allocate? What's that high-level view of how you would structure some of this stuff? And are we losing a lot of immutability that people talk about as a selling point of functional languages? Or is it one of those things like Clojure where you can jump in and out, but you just have to be explicit about which parts are mutable, which parts are immutable? What does that memory management overall look like? Yeah, so I mean, it's definitely very similar to Rust. What I didn't do was to like read up exactly on how they did it or anything like that. I kind of tried to find sources for Rust memories management system, but I couldn't really find a good canonical explanation of how it is done and what's the abstract model for it. So I just tried to use the same philosophy, but if anything, I tried to make it easier to use since a lot of people have problems with the memory management in Rust. And since Rust is kind of the only language with this model at the moment, that's not really true since Idris and Haskell are getting support for these things also. But anyway, I, I think it's interesting to just see what can be done with this idea of really analyzing the code paths and try to manage memory for the programmer as much as possible, but without garbage collection, rather through static analysis and see what memory can be reused and passed on, modified in place because there's only one reference to it, like all those things. So, I mean, on a high level, what I wanted the programmer to be able to do was basically to create a game state and map various functions over it and doing all these things in a very functional way. But behind the scenes, it should all be mutating like this one structure, which is what you want in a game because you have one version of the world that you're kind of showing the player. And it should be fine to just manipulate that in most cases. But I wanted the code to be kind of this pipeline of functions, uh, which I'm used to from Haskell and Clojure and so And so digging just a little bit deeper, you said you're trying to statically analyze as much as you can. Is this, they write the person in CARP or you writing in CARP, you just declare stuff and then the compiler will put in the Alex and D allocations in the code at the appropriate point. And so when it gets compiled down, there's a specific allocation, deallocation, but as the person writing in just CARP doesn't have to think about that, or is there a balance of runtime checks that do this, or is it a little bit of both? Or am I just, as someone writing CARP, I'm managing a little bit more, but I specify, is this, I guess, the shared borrowed scope versus automatically deallocating this based off, it's now out of scope, I can now know that this is established only this block, so when this scope leaves... Digging a little deeper, what is that overview of how you're taking advantage of that? Yeah, so you definitely have to think a bit more about it, just like in Rust and so on. In the best cases, it's kind of like in C++ and so on, where you have a variable that lives in a scope, and when the variable goes out of scope, it deallocates its memory, and it's just this very nice model where you pass things to functions and they can do things with that memory and then when you pop back to the 
parent scope where the memory was allocated and that function exits, you deallocate. And that's pretty easy to think about as a programmer too, but just having to think about it is usually a good thing when you, you're trying to get good performance. So just like in Rust, you get warnings if you try to return a pointer to some memory that's going to go out of scope and so on. And you have to do more complicated things then, like make sure that someone else handles that value when it's returned and so on. And then one of the other things that you had as an outline for the goal of CARP is not only that it's performant, but it sounds like you're going for the fast feedback loop that you have with a lot of functional programming languages where you have the REPL, you have the ability to play and experiment. What is that high-level story like of how you're trying to do this? Is that you're actually able to have this game run and dynamically update the code, and you can live reload and overload and redeclare your functions? Or what is this interactive story that you're going for with CARP? Yeah, so that was a very clear and important goal to me when I started implementing the language. For example, I was very tired with Clojure with accidentally removing functions or changing their names, but still having references to the functions so that when I open up my project later, things don't work anymore and so on. So one of the things I did with CARP was to kind of create a graph of all the functions and their dependencies so that when you recompile one function, all the functions that depend on that function also recompile and check that they are consistent with this new world or the new environment. And yeah, like I said, the goal was to create this live coding experience. This is not something I have completely succeeded with, though. At the moment, you can definitely work at the REPL and redefine functions and so on, but working with like a live program, I have some experiments with it. Kind of works, but it, it is tricky since it's also low level and there's a lot of things with threads and drawing and so on that is complicating things a lot. And also the interface between the dynamic world of live evaluating code and the compiled functions, it was also one of those things that was harder than I thought it would be because of memory management, basically. Like there needs to be a lot of copying of values across that interface to not accidentally create references to the same object that kind of manipulates the same instance of something. So I think going forward with this project, I might have to reconsider just how much of a live language this should be. And that maybe as a kind of solution to really finishing the language, I would have to cut down on, on the live part of it a bit since it's more important to me to be able to, to write uh, games in this kind of Lisp language than to actually also work with them live, even though that would be very nice, certainly. And we'll get into the state of CARP and what it's looking like going forward. But I want to circle back around and make sure that we haven't left anything out that you think is a selling point of CARP or things you've learned from CARP or things you've learned from playing with games across other languages that you think need to be brought up that we haven't touched on anymore, or just any other things that have come up in our conversation that you think we need to dive deeper on. Then we'll get into the state of CARP and talk about where it is, where it's headed, what it's looking like. But keeping that aside, what haven't we covered that you think should be mentioned, or if there, if anything? I've definitely learned a lot about language design from doing this I guess one interesting aspect coming from Haskell and so on with the static types is like how much of that should be brought over to a Lisp. Like, should there be algebraic data types like some types and so on? Or is it fine to just have more C-like structs, which 
which is usually what you need to interrupt with OpenGL and those things that I would assume are most important for this language. That's more like an open question, but I think that's an interesting thing to think about. What are the most important data types in a statically typed Lisp? I'm, since I'm not done with the language, I'm I'm not sure what the answer is. I have structs, but I don't have enums or some types. So I'm kind of looking forward to having that and trying that out in a kind of Lisp setting and see how that feels, if it feels out of place or if it's a good fit when the language is statically typed. And with these types, I guess, to circle back around, you were saying you've got some basic structs and some basic data types. So at this point, it's leaning more towards a Lisp kind of type system, but statically typed, as opposed to folding out some of the other kinds of types that say, well, we've got some extra types, or we went full on ML types, or we even went full on Haskell or Idris or whatever extended super type system is there. This is just you get the basic types of list, so you get the basic structures, you get the you get the basic data types of a string, an int, a float, of whatever primitives. But we're now going and just saying, here's what the types are, so we can check this then. And your question now is, what would I get, and how much is it worth it to fold in some of these advanced ML style types? Yeah, exactly. I, um, that's an interesting question to me, at least. I mean. The most important data type to get right in this language is the array, since a packed array is kind of the best data structure when you want to do fast code. So anything like a linked list or similar pointer-heavy structures isn't really going to cut it for this language as a kind of core data structure. Rather, it's important to have like this C style array that you can use for most things where you can just loop over it with a very fast loop that is good for the processor and so on with caching and so on. So that kind of shoots out just even some of these a little bit more functional data structures between the performance of memory usage and allocation of things like a tree, T-R-I-E, or some of these other data structures, persistent data structures, in addition to the fact of some of their access stuff. So you're not even going that far. You're just staying down to basic, essentially, the types you would find in a C or maybe a Rust. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, when you have a memory model like Rust, anything that is too complicated in regards to the structure with references and so on, it becomes really hard to implement these more advanced data structures. So I'm definitely leaning more towards like these kind of dumb, simple ways of laying out memory, like in big blobs, which is usually what game developers do anyway. But to me, the allure of this language is more like letting you have a nice interface on top of these fast data structures and like letting you use Lisp macros and Lisp syntax to control them in a nice way rather than actually having these super complicated stacks of functions and so on, because that's going to be too slow anyway and too complicated to analyze memory-wise also. So yeah, simple data controlled by Lisp is kind of the idea here. And that makes sense. And that's why I was just wanting to outline it. And some of this is just establish those ideas for anybody who wants to check this out and figure out what those ideas that are actually working for you that maybe people think about trying to fold in as an extra library or something to the language that says, hey, can I do this kind of stuff back in my language and say, have this library that mimics what we do and essentially those lessons learned across all the languages. So you mentioned a couple times that it's still a work in progress, and you said you're not finished with it. You're still working on it. Your GitHub page for CARP shows it's a research project, although you do have a handful of contributors that you're listing on that front page. So what is the picture of where CARP is and what you're looking for CARP to be? Yeah, so 
I was working on the language during the first half of 2016, and then somewhere in the summer, some people found out about it and posted about it, and then I suddenly got a big surge of people who were interested in it, which was great, of course. It was fantastic to have so many people be interested in this, and I think it shows that there is really room for this kind of language. I think there are quite a lot of people who want a statically typed and very fast Lisp, be it CARP or be it another implementation, but it's definitely something that people are interested in. So yeah, it was very fun to get contributions and so on, but unfortunately it turned out uh, eventually <laughs> after a few months after getting contributions and so on that the way I had structured the whole compiler was probably not going to scale up very well. What I had done was to create a kind of small CARP interpreter in C and then implement the whole compiler using this interpreted version of the language. And this was very nice in the beginning because it allowed for some really cool merging of like the dynamic code with the statically typed code and the compiler and the REPL was very well integrated since they were in the same process and using the same language. And yeah, it was all very lispy in that sense. But eventually when I wanted to do more heavy analysis of, of the code, it turned out that uh, my interpreter was kind of too slow. And I also wanted to run my actual games and so on with the interpreted code until I was, now I want to compile this function, but I still wanted to be able to run the dynamic functions and the interpreter was kind of embarrassingly slow for that job. So what I've done since then is I've tried to research a better way to do it basically. And right now I'm rewriting the compiler in Haskell and I'm hoping that it will be much faster that way. And so you have the GitHub page. What are the other places for people who are interested and at least want to keep an eye on this and see what you're doing? Maybe learn those lessons or keep an eye out for when you say, hey, I think it's ready. I got this. Or can bounce ideas off of you if you have any questions or if they have any advice on doing this kind of stuff. What are the best places for people to find out about CARP and keep updated with what's going on? The GitHub page, are there any other places? The GitHub page is probably the best place still. And the version that is out there, I would say it's a pretty good proof of concept if you want to just get a feel for how this kind of system could work. It's pretty fun as a kind of serious toy kind of. It does work and it compiles down to pretty fast code, I would say. So definitely check out the GitHub page if you want to just see how it will look in the end. And I will, of course, update that with the new compiler when that is done. But right now I'm working on the new compiler in a private repository just to keep it separated and not confuse people too much. I'm on Twitter where I write about CARP sometimes and about my games most of the time. And I have a website where I will probably post something about CARP when it reaches the more public version. But yeah, like I said, I was kind of surprised by the amount of people who wanted to try this out, even though it was so early. So right now I'm just kind of hiding away, reading books about these things and trying to come up with a more future-proof way of creating this language in a way that's going to scale up for like bigger projects and so on. And then it looks like CARP also has a Gitter page as well, that there's a oh, basic yeah. community around of people asking questions and giving feedback for those playing with it. Yeah, there was definitely more of that last summer, but yeah, it would be super fun if people came in there and had ideas about the language and things to check out regarding this topic. It's definitely something that's fun to discuss. And then are there any other projects you're involved with? Any other things kind of around CARP or things you've learned from CARP? 
research papers or ideas you've taken from other inspiration that you want to let people know about, either things you've learned or just other things that you're working on that you want to point people to? Well, there is a document in the CARP repository um, in the docs folder. I have this research markdown document with a lot of links to similar projects and articles and papers about these things like borrowing systems and types and so on. So that's a good place to look for things that explain how this all works. Right now I'm reading um, the type-driven development with Idris book, which I really want to recommend because it's really well-written and very fun and interesting book. So I'm not putting dependent types into CARP, but it's definitely a very good book that I don't want anyone to miss. And just as you mentioned, the docs and the research markdown, that looks like a pretty impressive list. So I will definitely get that markdown page linked there. So it looks like a lot of interesting research material or just other articles that people are talking about of other topics from the borrowing and to CSP, to other language inspiration, to design, to a lot of other topics around there. So definitely we'll get that included in the show notes as well. You mentioned your Twitter feed. You mentioned your blog. Are there any other places that people can find you and follow along with what you're doing, whether it's CARP or anything else? That's what I boil it down to. Then I will make sure to get those links for people to come back and check in the show notes and be able to follow you on Twitter, find your blogs, find your articles that you put out there about CARP and whatever else you may be doing for sharing your learnings. So I'll get those added to the show notes. Cool. I'd like to give a Jay and thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Eric, for taking your time to join me today. It was interesting to hear some of that inspiration behind game development and how that relates to functional programming and some of those things that would just improve performance overall if we decided to pursue that route at whatever level. And just some of that inspiration about what it means to think about a language with those constraints in mind and hearing about how those constraints inform decisions on language design. So it was very interesting in seeing how some of this stuff looks out and definitely interested to see how those lessons apply in the future as you continue to refine your ideas around CARP and implement them. So thank you very much for taking your time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking with you about all this. Thank you. It was great fun. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.